Hello, I'm Julia Eleanor Rogers. This is number 0620, The Stuff File Program, with Peter Anthony Holder. And it comes to you right now. The following program is brought to you in living color. Now, it's time for an eclectic mix of interviews and some of the oddest news stories you'll ever hear. It's The Stuff File Program, with Peter Anthony Holder. Hey there, hi there, ho there. Peter Anthony Holder here with you, and yes, this is indeed another edition of the Stuff File Program, number 0620. And coming up on this edition of the Stuff File Program, you'll meet Cheryl Diamond, who is a model who is also the author of her own harrowing life story entitled Nowhere Girl, a memoir of a fugitive childhood. From early in her childhood, she and her family were crossing the globe trying to elude authorities. Well, at first, I felt like a big adventure up until about the age of six because it was presented to me like a game. Now we're going to a new place. You're going to have a new name, a new backstory. And at all costs, do not forget that. I know that by the time I was nine years old, things had turned very dark. And I saw that we were in a lot of trouble. And then as I got older, I started to realize that the most dangerous people, maybe they weren't the ones chasing us. Maybe they were my own family. Stephanie Levine is the author of Headlines, Deadlines, and Lies. It's a book that she calls a feel-good, beachy, small-town Florida mystery. It's a photo editor. She's a single mom, and she's moved back there. She has two young kids and a best friend. They both work the paper, and she gets an opportunity to pursue her dreams or go after something bigger, and it requires a little bit of a, a lie on her part, saying that she's something she's not, and then the rest of the story is her trying to figure out how to either sink or swim in this new situation. Bill Ryan from Cuba Can Bikes, he refurbishes used bicycles to send them to Cuba. Not much of a bicycle guy. I, I actually make baseball bats, and that's my claim to fame in Cuba. I've sent thousands of bats to Cuba, and all of them were made in my basement. Last year, we made about a 1,000 bats and sent them down there for their national series, and uh, we were looking for something to do this year, and, and you know what? Bicycles are needed, so uh, I thought, why not try? That's how we got into it, and it's a learning curve. We're getting tons and tons of bicycles, and we're figuring out to get them in shape and get them down there. And there's lots and lots of stuff file news and, of course, an idiot of the day. The guest Slater. The person who told you this was show number 0620 was Julia Eleanor Rogers, the station manager and program director of CFMH, local 107.3 FM in St. John, New Brunswick, a new home for the stuff file program, where the show will be heard Sundays at 10 p.m. Thank you very much, Julia Eleanor Rogers. God, I love somebody with three names. Thank you very much for being the guest Slater on this edition of the Stuff File Program, a show that is listener-supported, fan-funded radio that depends on you for our success. Join us at patreon.com to help make this show an even bigger and better radio experience. And again, thank you to all those who are now listening in on local 107.3 FM in St. John. Welcome aboard. Let's get right to the stuff, shall we? 
35-year-old Gavin Lancaster was sentenced to a year in jail after pleading guilty to six counts of shoplifting. Over the course of several days, he stole nearly $3,000 in merchandise from multiple stores in Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire, England, bringing him to 73 convictions from 171 offenses. He is known very well to staff in the shop, said Paul Kay, the mitigating attorney in Lancaster's latest case. The security man knows him by his first name. At one store, Lancaster had gathered so many items that once he got outside, he realized he couldn't easily carry it all. He left the merchandise outside and went back into the store when he realized he needed a bag, so he bought one. Everything he steals but the bag he buys. Gee, that makes sense. I guess that means that just because he's a criminal doesn't mean he's not environmentally conscious. And during a burglary at the XTC Adult Superstore, oh, I see, it's XTC, which if you say it fast enough is ecstasy. I get it. Uh, that would be the Ecstasy Adult Superstore in Bradenton, Florida. A man could be seen on surveillance video breaking the store window, stealing lingerie and sex toys, and making his getaway on a scooter. Deputies were able to link the break-in to one a month earlier at CJ's Adult Store, where the suspect could be seen fleeing on the same scooter. Deputies served a search warrant at the home of 45-year-old Craig Pierce, where they found items linked to both crimes. He was charged with two counts of burglary and held in the Manatee County Jail on $3,000 bond. So, basically, they're taking away his toys and sending him to his room. Wildlife officials in Colorado said a bear climbed into a home through an open window and left after feasting on cat food it found inside. Officials said the bear finished its meal and left through the same window. There were residents home at the time of the burglary, but no injuries were reported. Well, it could have been worse. Instead of just eating cat food, it could have eaten the cat. And finally, in this section of Stuff File News, a Florida man tried to smuggle methamphetamine into a local jail by hiding it in a sensitive area. Gee, how many sensitive areas can you think of? Deputies said they were in the process of booking 30-year-old Shaft Bang Adams into the Orange County Jail on May 13th when they located four white crystal rocks inside his penis skin during a strip search. Okay, let's stop right there. If you decide to name your child Shaft Bang Adams, then this is the kind of trouble you can expect 30 years down the road. Adams is facing a charge of introducing contraband in a state facility in connection with the incident. The arrest affidavit didn't say why Adams was being booked into the jail, but court records show he has been arrested multiple times in Orange County. The most recent incident was on June 22nd. Yes, that's after the penis plot. When deputies said they saw him making hand-to-hand -hand transactions in an area known for narcotic sales. According to the report, a deputy told Adams to get in the back of the patrol car and during a search they found cocaine residue on his cell phone. 
Deputies then tried to search Adams further and instructed him to take off his shoes and socks, but after taking the left one off, he became irate and refused to take off the right one. Adams tensed up as a deputy tried to remove the right sock, which is where a baggie of cocaine was found. You got the right one, baby! What? You thought I was going to do a shaft audio drop? Too easy. Adams was arrested on charges of resisting an officer with violence and possession of cocaine. While he was released on bond after the meth arrest in May, that bond was revoked after the most recent arrest. Well, when it comes to meth, he certainly has broken the penal code. Anyway, let's get to our first guest here in this edition of the Stuff File program, shall we? Cheryl Diamond had an outlaw childhood. By age nine, she had lived in more than a dozen countries on five continents and had assumed six identities as her parents evaded Interpol and other law enforcement agencies. Cheryl survived a very unconventional upbringing to become a successful fashion model, and she shares her story in the book Nowhere Girl, a memoir of a fugitive childhood. She joins us on the line from Rome, Italy. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the program with us. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. First of all, what were your parents initially running from? Uh, and that was the big question that haunted me my whole life. I won't give too much of it away for the sake of the book. Right. But my father, uh, one year before I was born, uh, they were being chased by a member of my mother's family. And so in order to escape, he decided to steal two million, about $2 million of his investors' money in order to be able to buy new identities. And by the time I was born, one year later, they were being chased by Interpol. Okay, so as I mentioned in the introduction, you had, had uh, by age nine, had lived in a dozen countries and had six identities. That's a very young age to know what's going on about anything. At what point did you, as a child, realize this is not normal? Well, at first, I felt like a big adventure. I remember right. that when I was very little, up until about the age of six, um, because it was presented to me like a game, like, uh, now we're going to a new place, you're going to have a new name, a new backstory. And at all costs, do not forget that. And by the, I know that by the time I was nine years old, things had turned very dark, and I saw that we were in a lot of trouble. And that there, I and then as I got older, I started to realize that the most dangerous people, maybe they weren't the ones chasing us, maybe they were my own family. Wow. So. How, I mean, every child rebels at some point during their life, usually the teenage years. What were your teenage years like? I was too busy surviving to rebel. <laughs> I, uh, that was not a luxury I had. I, uh, my teenage years were spent um, trying to make money because by the time I was 14, the luxurious lifestyle my father had been leading had caused all the money to run out. And so that was actually why I originally got into the fashion industry was to, uh, and also the reason I had the idea to write my first book was I wanted to, well, save my, have enough money to take care of them. 
And so my first book was published at 21, and then I've been writing ever since. Now, as I mentioned, you're currently in Rome, uh, but you've had such a nomadic life as a little girl. Are you capable of calling someplace home, or, or do you still, uh, for lack of a better term, have wanderlust? I, I have very little wanderlust because I've I've been I've seen the world, and uh, so in fact, I appreciate peace very much and stability. For me, that's the exciting thing. It's it's like the reverse of what it would be to someone, I guess, who had a stable childhood and craved travel. Uh, I do enjoy traveling sometimes, but um, I really my base is very precious to me. What is the relationship, if at all, if any, with your family right now? The only person in my family who I'm in touch with is my mother, because we were in fact able to escape together, and we have we enjoy a very close relationship because it's more than mother and daughter; it's also two people who've been through a battle together that no one else really knew about back then. Now, you, you say you don't want to give away too much of the story because, of course, you have this novel, this 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 memoir out. Uh, but having said that, was there any concern uh, when you started writing this particular book that you would be saying something or uncovering something that either authorities or the people who were allegedly chasing your father would find out or give them tips to? Well, I had no worries about the authorities because I, in fact, went to the authorities after I escaped. Um, And that was part of how I was able to eventually get free. The people... I worried about and the consideration I had was what my family might do because my father is still out there somewhere I don't know, as is my uh, sister. And so those that was the concern I had because, uh, as you'll see in the book, they're quite dangerous people. And I thought about that a lot as I was writing Nowhere Girl and even before starting to write. But then I came to the decision that uh, I needed to tell the story. It wasn't something I could keep inside anymore. And that the risk of being able to be myself is worth whatever consequence might come. You say you haven't spoken to your father or your sister. Are they together? No, I no, I don't think so. Okay. No. And is there a reason why you haven't spoken to your sister? Yes, that will be very clear in the book. Yes, uh, we're very, very different. Is people. she is she an older sister or a younger sister? Yes, twelve years older. I was twelve years the older. Okay. Youngest. Yeah, I was the youngest by far in my family. So, in other words, your sister was someone who was quite aware of what was going on, certainly long before you were cognizant of it. Yes. Yes. And at the same time, a victim of the same circumstances as, as well, uh, very trapped in the same position that I would later find myself in has, has writing, as I came into adulthood. Has writing this book been cathartic for you, or has the writing of this book also been cathartic for your mother? Both. <laughs> That's a very insightful question, both. It... Uh, 
it was actually very nice to speak with her after she read the entire manuscript before publication. It was very emotional for her. And she, I, she thanked me. She said that it, it felt like a weight had been lifted off her because there were no more secrets anymore. We were finally actually part of the world. Because you had a childhood that was essentially one lie after another, does it make it difficult for you to trust people? Well, that was the biggest struggle of my life after what I lived through. And um, it, uh, that's why I'm forever, uh, forever grateful to the people who I met after I got away, because they, these friends I made and the people who are around me now, they saw me uh, way more clearly than I saw myself because I was still just feeling all the hurt and insecurity and uh, heartbreak from what I went through. And yet they saw actually me, who I was before any of that happened. And so they were able to build back my my trust in, in people, in life, and... Um, for sure, after you've had a life like mine, it's, trust is always something that doesn't come so easy. But uh, for the people who are very close to me, it doesn't matter. I trust them with my life. I mentioned your sister. She's not the only sibling you've had. Mm-hmm. You have yes, a, I had a brother who was 10 years older. And, and what happened to him? Uh, that is something that for... You'll have an idea of it in the book for legal reasons. The actual event had to be edited um, before publication by the, the legal team of the publisher because it was too explosive to have in a book. So, but uh, I rewrote the scene in a way that you, it's, you'll, you'll still understand, I think, uh, that something happened. How difficult was it sharing your own story, or at least writing out your own story, and then having to deal with lawyers saying what you can and cannot tell? Yes, uh, it was, that was a, one of the hardest things I went through in the last years, because it, uh, and, I, and I understand it completely. Um, I'm sure my, my publisher was right. Um, it's, it's, uh, that I wanted so much to to say everything that happened and to tell the whole truth. And I think that I have actually done that in, in, in this book. Even though a scene was cut, it's a, it's a small scene. Um, and not a small scene, but a small portion of the book, of course. And um, But that was a huge struggle for me. I had uh, some very dark months after that, I'll admit. You haven't talked to your father in years. You don't know where he is. Would you like to talk to him? Would you like for him to read this book? I would not like to talk to him because everything that I had to say, I did. And I'm, I'm glad I said it in the moment. I think it's important in life to take a stand and say what you mean in the moment so that you never have the doubt of what would have been if you had really spoken out sincerely. So after I did that, no, I, I certainly do not. I'm very happy with my life as it is. 
uh, away from those people. Uh, regarding him reading the book, it's interesting. It's an interesting question, but my first response would be, it doesn't matter to me, really. Mm. Because that's a part of my life that I... It's, uh, so I've told the truth. So whatever he or anyone else thinks of it, uh, that doesn't matter to me so much. It's it's done. It's there. And is he still technically on the run? Are authorities still after him? I I think so. Um, not as much as they were before because time has passed. But uh, yes. Well, it's a fascinating story for someone to read it's it's i can't imagine what it's like to have lived through it the book is called nowhere girl a memoir of a fugitive childhood cheryl thank you very very much for taking the time to be on the program with us thank you it was a pleasure cheryl diamond author of nowhere girl a memoir of a fugitive childhood you can go to my website at thestufffile.com, check out the show number for this program, which is show number 0620, and you'll find links to Cheryl's site, plus links to either Amazon.com or Amazon.ca, where you can order her book directly. You're listening to The Stuff File Program with me, Peter Anthony Holder. The Stuff File Program is a listener-supported, fan-funded radio show that depends on you for our success. Join us at Patreon.com to help make this show an even bigger and better radio experience. Sign up and find out about our rewards program. Being a patron doesn't have to be a long-term commitment. There's absolutely no obligation. You could join today and end whenever you'd like. But the time we have your support would be so greatly appreciated. We'd also love to hear your thoughts about the show and even your ideas for rewards. Join us for the ride. Join us at patreon.com slash the stuff file program. You're experiencing the stuff file program with Peter Anthony Holder. Sit back, relax, let it rattle around between your ears, tickling your cerebellum, <laughs> and enjoy. And still to come on the program, we'll talk to the author of Headlines, Deadlines, and Lies. Plus, we'll learn about a guy who's refurbishing bikes to send them off to Cuba to those who need them the most. We also have an idiot of the day coming your way a little later on and much more in Stuff File News here on the Stuff File program, which is heard everywhere for all your devices such as Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, just to name a few. You can also find it on some fine radio stations such as WLSLLP-FM in Dade City, Florida, CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, CKLU 96.7 FM in Sudbury, CFMU in Hamilton, and CFMH-FM in St. John, New Brunswick. Thanks to all for joining in. Don't touch that dial. Well, Michigan State Police decided it was necessary to tweet a warning. Freeways are the lowest points in Detroit, Michigan, and storms have flooded much of the area. We cannot pump it anywhere because it just comes right back into the freeway as rivers are full, says Michigan Department of Transportation spokeswoman Diane Cross. Do not go into the water, the MSP posted on Twitter. This water has debris, sharp metal, submerged cars, gasoline and oil floating in it. There is also a good chance that there is sewage also in the water. The post included a photo of people enjoying the water, a photo that I have posted up on the Stuff File Facebook fan page. Additionally, warned the state's Department of Health and Human Services, there is a danger of electrical shock from downed and exposed power lines. 
You know, the more I stare at this picture, the more I begin to question how we managed to have survived as a species for so long. And let me share with you the story of 42-year-old Shane Wayne Michael. And please note that Shane has the middle name of Wayne, and you know traditionally where this is going. Shane went into an eyeglass store in Des Moines, Iowa. When another man requested that he adjust his mask to cover his nose, he found a fight. Which of them made the confrontation violent it was disputed, but witnesses said it was Shane. In the course of the fight, the police report said Shane kneed the other guy in the groin and poked him in the eye, but that wasn't all. The victim, the report said, accused Shane of spitting and coughing on him and telling him, if I have it, you have it. The news story does not say whether either man got the coronavirus, but the victim got a swollen eye, and Shane got a jury conviction. He's now looking forward to a 10-year sentence for willful injury causing serious injury. Nothing like going into an eyeglass store to make a spectacle of yourself. Well, if he had no concern of catching something before, then he should have no problem in the close, friendly quarters where nobody else has a short fuse that he gets to inhabit for the next decade. Lucky, lucky Shane. Shane Wayne, actually. Yeah. Uh, moving right along, deer are not native to Australia, which might explain why two nude sunbathers in Royal National Park, which is south of Sydney, ran into the bush when a deer startled them on a nudist beach on June 27th. The two men, aged 30 and 49 years old, became lost and called for help, summoning a police rescue helicopter to pluck them from the forest. Unfortunately for them, they were found to be breaching a COVID-19 lockdown instated in response to the Delta variant, and both were charged with fines. And that's the naked truth. By the way, since the deer are not native to Australia, did anybody bother to check where this particular creature came from? And was it breaking any quarantine rules by being there? Anyway... And finally, in this section of Stuff File News, 27-year-old Vincent Vinnie Marks of Louisiana picked the wrong guy to pull over as he impersonated a police officer on June the 10th. An off-duty sheriff's deputy was driving that day when the vehicle behind him began flashing his headlights continuously. The deputy pulled into a convenience store parking lot, followed by Marks, who approached his car, presented a badge, and represented himself as being a police officer. Unfortunately, the off-duty officer recognized Marks from a domestic incident that he had responded to earlier in the year. The Assumption Parish Sheriff's Office launched an investigation, and Marks was arrested for false impersonation of a peace officer. In other words, he shouldn't have been in possession of any kind of badge. Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking bushes. Hey, what do I keep telling you about using double negatives? Anyway, we don't know why he was pretending to be a cop, but one thing you need to do if you are a cop, especially like the one he pulled over, is remember faces. Have I met you before? I, uh, don't think so. 
I'm sure I have. Your face is very familiar. I don't know. I've definitely seen you someplace before. I really don't think so. Darling, I don't think you know the man. Uh, I never forget a face. Come on. Where do I know you from? I do a lot of hardcore gay porn movies. Well, moving right along, let's get to our next guest here on the Stuff Out program, shall we? Stephanie Levine is a rather prolific writer with more than 50 titles under her belt in both the romance and mystery genre. Her latest book is called Headlines, Deadlines, and Lies, with a story that takes place in her home state of Florida. Stephanie joins us from South Florida via Skype. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, Peter. How are you? Just tickety-boo. Thanks very much for being on the program with us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I understand that you're working somewhat into our wheelhouse, at least into my wheelhouse, when you talk about this book, because it, it does touch on a little bit of journalism. Yep. Uh, um, the main character works at a newspaper, and so there's a crime reporter and uh, a newspaper vibe to it. You also have a tinge of humor within your books, correct? I always try and keep it light and fun, even if it's, uh, you know, no matter how, I'm not going to say dark, I'm not a particularly dark writer, but yeah, I always like to have fun or have those quirks or sarcasm or jokes or just moments where you can laugh. So when Keep you're fun. so when you're writing, generally speaking, since you like to add humor to even what might be a serious situation, how do you balance that as a writer? I think that part of that might just be my personality where the way I deal with difficult situations is with a bit of humor or laughing through the pain kind of thing. So it just might be who I am that that naturally translates into my writing. But I think that you also need comic relief or relief of some sort, even in a suspense or a thriller or a high stakes drama, you know, you are always going to have some, some release, you know, whether that's a comic relief or, you know, some sort of side character or something that breaks it because we can only take so much as humans. So I think it's a natural balance that we need across the board. We always need that in in stories. Ah, a girl after my own heart. So tell <laughs> me, what is Headlines, Deadlines, and Lies all about? Um, this, for me, was a crossover book. Um, it's a feel-good mystery, I think I'd call it. It's sort of a beachy, small-town Florida mystery. It's quirky and cozy, but still complicated and speaks sort of to the thing that all of us can relate to, which is family and the complications of family and family history. Um, I wrote this, like I said, as a crossover for my Sweet Romance readers, which I have a pen name that I write a lot in for Sweet Romance, and that's sort of small towns and very feel-good beach read style romance. And then my mystery readers, I want them to have fun. And a lot of romance readers also love mystery. But I was sort of making my inaugural journey from writing predominantly romance to finally writing under my own name and mystery. And this takes place in a small beachside town in the panhandle of Florida. And it's a photo editor. She's a single mom and she's moved back there. She has two young kids and a best friend. They both work the paper, but she's always had sort of bigger aspirations and dreams, which kind of got kiboshed by having, by not by having children, but you know, by the life choices, the way her life has unfolded. It hasn't exactly unfolded the way she thought. And she gets an opportunity, which she sort of, sort of to pursue her dreams or go after something bigger. And it requires a little bit of a, 
a lie on her part saying that she's something she's not and her best friend being there a fun little sidekick kind of pushes her into it and then the rest of the story is her trying to figure out how to either sink or swim in this new situation you know we we're living in a world these days where the profession of journalism or being in the media can somehow get under fire and that's partially because well let's be honest the 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 divided nature of of politics in general in in the United States, uh, does any of that rear its head in a story like headlines, deadlines, and lies? Especially considering the last word is lies. Well, this one was originally written for to become a Hallmark movies or TV series. You know, a, a sort of a cozy mystery TV series. So I want to set the place and then be able to have a different storyline, either for each book or for each episode. This will, at this point, I'm just going to keep it as a standalone because I'm sort of on to different things right now. But it was, the the main subject matter is actually genealogy. What she ends up getting into is family trees and genealogy, which she thinks is going to be pretty simple and straightforward. And my challenge with this was finding a way to make a mystery, an intriguing mystery that kept you trying to figure it out, but that didn't involve starting with a murder and didn't involve starting with like an epic crime per se, which which most most mystery books do. And so I think you kind of avoid maybe the larger political oppositions rearing their heads in this, but you come into a more maybe nuanced arena where it is dealing with family or family trees or these sort of interpersonal connections it's sort of like a quieter mystery where you realize there's a lot of drama and a lot of mystery that we that we sort of create in our our retellings of our lives or our retellings of our family histories and so this book plays in that world Mm. as i mentioned in the introduction you're a very prolific writer more than 50 titles under your belt and you said uh, that you do a lot of romance writing and and this is somewhat different from what you have done in the past or what you have, what you're primarily known for. I'm just wondering, as a writer, when you're sitting down, do you sit, do you come up with ideas for stories, and you say, "Oh no, wait a minute, this one's not going to work for this," but let me park this one a, a little later on, and because I've got another story idea that I can put this in. Yeah, yeah, I think definitely. Um, I had always set out to be a mystery writer, and my first books were mystery, and then that are, some of them are still banked, and um, some of those two, you know, end up being combined. I ended up getting into romance almost by accident, but I've had a really fun time writing in romance and I will continue doing that. And now I'm getting to finally start writing full time in mystery as well. And so that's a whole new adventure, but I definitely have folders or notepads and I just put things down. Sometimes it's a character, sometimes it's a plot line. I have a whole section of my notes where I'll just put little plot thoughts like a lot of times news stories I'm like oh my gosh that that is a uh, that's a storyline or some part of a storyline for another story I don't know what the story is yet but that will possibly work its way in so yeah I do that a lot how long have you been writing romance novels I've been doing romance for five years okay the reason why I ask is a lot has changed over the last say decade or so yes. uh, certainly the the me too movement has had an effect. Or just let me ask that question. What do you think the Me Too movement uh, uh, has done in terms of romance writing? Hmm. 
Um, well, I do know there's a lot of conversations we have about trying to navigate topics. My my main pen name now that I write under is Sweet Romance. And so that is really feel good. That's sort of my thing that I am trying to give back. The world's gotten so crazy that even though I've written in various sub-niches in, in romance, like all different ones, I've kind of come back to the sweet sort of small town romance because I want people to have a relief, to have an escape, and to also believe in the possibility of good things with so much craziness going on in the world. And so I do hit on drama. You know, you do have adventure and drama and excitement in your books, but um, I try and steer away from things that are too, too heavy in those in in some of those arenas i'm happy to talk about them but i think that you know we all carry around a lot of weight so for romance it's just tricky well getting back to headlines deadlines and lies you mentioned the fact that this was an idea you originally were considering uh for a a tv film of, of some kind or a series as a writer do you tend to write in a literary style or a more visual style I would have to ask my readers, but probably a more, with these type of books, with these genre uh, books, probably more of a visual style. When I was younger, I was definitely more literary style. Um, This has been a fun way to create more. I'm a pretty visual person in the way that I conceptualize and in my my stories or just anything really. And I did used to work in the film industry for many, many years. And then I was a photographer. And again, always with the plan was always to come back to writing. I was always doing some version of writing. But um, so I think it's fun. I probably write in a pretty visual style, hopefully, to create something that people can see in their heads. So as as a writer who has been in the film business, do you, as you write, cast your characters? Do you envision who gets to play the characters you create? Sometimes. I have some where I have them all cast. Uh, I have a book called The Oceanside Widows Club, and you know I have all my my greats from back in the day. You know, Kathy Bates and uh, and Goldie Hawn. All these people cast in the the roles for that, and some of them are purely fictitious. Well, the current book is Headlines, Deadlines, and Lies. Um, I thank you very much, Stephanie, for taking the time to be on the program with us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Peter, so much. I hope you have a great day. Stephanie Levine, author of Headlines, Deadlines, and Lies. You can go to my website at thestufffile.com, check out the show number for this program, which is show number 0620, and you'll find links to Stephanie's site, plus links to either Amazon.com or Amazon.ca, where you can order her book directly. You're listening to The Stuff File Program with me, Peter Anthony Holder. Got something for the mailbag? Drop Peter a line. He'd love to hear from you. Send your email to mailbag at thestufffile.com. And remember, stuff is spelled S-T-U-P-H. That's mailbag at thestufffile.com. Or catch up with him on Twitter or Facebook. There's more Stuff File coming your way in just a few moments. Peter Anthony Holder here. Often I mention my book, Great Conversations, my interviews with two men on the moon and a galaxy of stars. I also often mention that I'd like you to become a patron of the Stuff File program via Patreon.com. Well, this is my opportunity to combine both of those pleas to you. 
You've heard me say on many occasions about the myriad of celebrities I've had the chance to talk to that are contained in my book, which is published by Bear Manor Media. You've also heard me mention that some of the celebrities in my book, and many others, can be heard on our page at Patreon.com. Well, if you've been on the fence about joining Patreon, let me try to pull you over to our side. By becoming a patron, you help to make this show an even bigger and better radio experience. And if you do become a regular patron, as a Patreon reward, I'll share with you an electronic version of my book for your e-reader. So join Patreon and claim your copy of Great Conversations, my interviews with two men on the moon and a galaxy of stars. Sign up today at patreon.com slash the stuff file program. From the land that brought you maple syrup, poutine, ice hockey, and Pamela Anderson, this is The Stuff File with Peter Anthony Holder. And still to come in the program, we'll talk to a guy who's sending bikes to Cuba. Plus, we do indeed have an idiot of the day coming your way and more Stuff File news here on The Stuff File program, which is also heard on Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Well... In Gillette, Wyoming, a 62-year-old man called the Campbell County Sheriff's Office on June 24th to ask why he hadn't been arrested the day before when officers raided his home. Under Sheriff Quinton Reynolds asked him why he ought to be arrested, and the man admitted that he had used methamphetamine, which might shed light on the fact that his house was never raided and there were no plans to arrest him. He also told officers that 10 men were following him, Deputies caught up with him as he was driving and arrested him for driving under the influence of a controlled substance. Wow. We're really escalating here, aren't we? I mean, gone are the days when people who were high would just see imaginary spiders crawling all over them. Now they're seeing drug agents doing raids. That's some potent stuff. And 31-year-old Kyle F. Campbell of Indiana has been banned from Yellowstone National Park for five years after a series of incidents on June 21st that also landed him with a 60-day jail sentence, five years of unsupervised probation, and a fine. The mayhem started with Campbell and his friends being denied access to their kayaks because they were drunk. The group moved to another part of the park where Campbell threatened a security guard who asked him to drive more slowly. Park rangers placed him in handcuffs and in their patrol car, where he banged his head on the glass until they removed him. One ranger and Campbell got into a struggle and he was placed under arrest for disorderly conduct, but he wasn't finished. Back in the patrol vehicle, he tried to kick out the back window and had to be placed in leg restraints, then was forcibly sedated on the way to the hospital to treat his injuries. Rangers found empty alcohol bottles and marijuana containers in Campbell's car. Wow. Isn't marijuana supposed to calm you down? How wound up was this guy to begin with? And I'm guessing he doesn't remember a thing. Anyway, let's get to our last guest here in this edition of the Stuff File program, shall we? Bill Ryan is a pedal pusher. He and friends Eric LaBelle and John Cameron are collecting bicycles which they lovingly refurbish and then send them off to those in need in Cuba. Bill joins us on the line from his home just south of Ottawa. Hi, Bill. Hi, Peter. How are you? 
Jess Tickety-Boo, thanks very much for taking the time to be on the program with us. I saw a story on uh, the news uh, about a week ago which showed what you were doing with the bikes, and I thought it was a, a really great idea. How did this all start with you? Well, it started actually quite a few years ago. Um, I'm not much of a bicycle guy. I, I actually make baseball bats, and that's my claim to fame in Cuba. Um, I've sent thousands of bats to Cuba, and all of them were made in my basement. Um, last year, we made about a 1,000 bats and sent them down there for their national series, and uh, we were looking for something to do this year, and, and uh, you know what? Bicycles are needed, so uh, I thought, why not try? So that's, that's how we got into it, and uh, it's a learning curve. Um, we're getting tons and tons of bicycles, and we're figuring out how to get them in shape and get them down there. Well, let's go back to the beginning a little bit. First of all, what was the attraction to you for your, your, your affinity for Cuba and helping those out in that country? Well, it, we're tourists. Uh, I mean, we're not affiliated with any uh, political organization, uh, any union, any uh, any solidarity groups. Uh, Nora and I are just tourists. We go, we went there, or have been going there every year as tourists, and that's where we uh, we have had our holidays. Uh, every time we get there, we get to meet more people. Um, we, we, you know, they're they're quite open. They're quite willing to talk and. Uh, uh, and so we know a little bit about what goes on. And so what we look for is what can we do to help just as individuals? And John Cameron and Eric Lavelle, these are just guys. Uh, they know nothing about Cuba. They don't care about politics. They don't care about any of those things. But uh, uh, they just like helping. And, and in this case, it helps a lot of people. So when you first got the idea to start sending bicycles, because let's let's face it, in in a place like Cuba, a bicycle is... Not only just a recreation, it is a form of transportation, a needed form of transportation for many people. It's the way a lot of people get around. So when you first came up with this idea, what was your goal as to how many bikes you could send to Cuba? And now with the media blitz that you suddenly realized by being on the news and all over the place, what has that turned into? Well, our initial goal was 200 bikes, and we thought that would fill a container. Um, and we targeted to have the 200 bikes by the end of August, and, and was thinking that it would take most of the summer to collect them. Well, um, you know, we're a few weeks into this, and I think I have about 270 bikes, and uh, and I get emails every day. Um, the people that are helping collect the bikes, they're getting emails and calls every day. So we're probably going to be in the three to 400 range, which uh, really changes the size of the container that we're sending uh, rather than the, uh, the, uh, the objection or the, uh, the objective, which is to get as many bikes as we can down there. Now, you're in the eastern Ontario area of uh, Carlton Place, Smith Falls, Ottawa, that, that region. I'm assuming that's where you thought most of the bicycles were going to be coming from. Has has it grown where you're getting bikes from further afield because of the media attention you've attracted? Well, I, I'm not getting bikes. I'm turning them down. Uh, I've had several calls from uh, B.C., from British Columbia, uh, Nova Scotia, all over Ontario, Toronto. I'm, I'm terrified of Toronto. If the word gets out there, I could, I could get, you know, a thousand calls. Uh, we're collecting uh, in the eastern Ontario area, and, and again, your Brockville, Cornwall, Ottawa, Triangle, 
uh, and up into the valley. And, uh, you know, there's no, there's no doubt that we're going to get the three or 400 and maybe more. So we don't need to go any farther than that. I know that a lot of people would love to help. Uh, would love to get us bikes, but it's not practical to send the bicycle from uh, Vancouver to uh, to Ottawa uh, when the distance is greater than, than it is from Ottawa to Cuba. What are the conditions of the bikes? What are the conditions they're in? I, I would assume there are various conditions from from basically mint to somewhat maybe dilapidated? Yeah, we're getting some older bikes, uh, and it's surprising because some of the older bikes are mint. I mean, they're, they're, one fella um, uh, from from the other side of Ottawa, uh, he gave us a bike that he bought 47 years ago, and the thing works perfectly, absolutely perfectly. We, we do get some older bikes that have been left outside for some time. Um, of the 250 bikes that we've got so far, I'd say four of them we haven't been able to refurbish, uh, and we've used them for parts. Uh, in the case of, of one, uh, you know, it, there was a little accident and the wheel got bent, so we took uh, parts off another bike, and now it's uh, as good as gold. Hmm. Now, this is not something you've done before. As you say, you've sent bats to Cuba, and I'm sure they're well appreciated. But is there any kind of difference uh, in sending bats as you did and bikes that you're about to send as far as the logistics of sending those bikes are concerned? Like, for instance, just uh, for starters, where are you sending them to or who are you sending them to in Cuba? One of the challenges in in sending anything to uh, a country like Cuba or or many other countries, the 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 common remark is that well we know it got there but we don't know what happened to it. Uh, in our case, the the container will go to Cuba. Uh, my contact, my friend, uh, a guy that I've known for ten years and and uh, uh, has has a, a a very high profile in Cuba. Uh, he's the head of an organization called CER, which is the Committees for the Defense of the Republic, and it's a I guess in simple terms, it's like a neighborhood watch. They have committees uh, across the country. They have 8.4 million members out of a population of 11 and a half. So they cover everywhere. And that's small towns, uh, countryside, you name it. The idea is that he will get it to their warehouse in Havana, and then he will distribute uh, through those organizations, through those committees, to the people that need it. And so I don't need to worry about somebody getting uh, two or three bikes and selling them. I know that whoever gets these bikes uh, is going to be in need. And you're taking... And that's one of the biggest challenges when you're sending this stuff to another country. Right. And you're and you're taking bikes of all shapes and sizes, from bikes for little kids to bikes for adults and everything in between. Uh, yeah. And, you know, people are saying, I guess you don't want kids' bikes. And I said, well, sure I do. You know, Cuban kids would love to have uh, a bike when they're six or seven or eight years old. It would, you know, it's an amazing uh, feeling when you actually see the reaction of the kids. Parents, uh, when I give them a baseball bat to, to a player, you know, I mean, the smile and, and the odd tear, but you give it to a, a, you know, a six or seven or eight year old, and, and the eyes just go wide. I mean, they're amazed. And so I get a lot more satisfaction out of seeing that happen. Uh, and I would love to be able to, there, to go there and hand out all these bikes, which isn't going to happen. But we probably have, of the 250, we probably have 
40 uh, that are, are small kids' bikes, and we'll find space for them for sure. With the success of how this is going, do you anticipate that this is something you will continue to do in the years to come? Well, this is the fourth project that I've I've taken on. Uh, the first one was bat making equipment. Uh, the second one was uh, uh, um, was sports equipment for kids. Two years ago, we sent two and a half tons of of sports equipment to uh, to Cuba. Uh, it, it was a massive job. Last year, it was baseball bats to help them get through the series, and and it, the intention was that that would help them get to the Olympics. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. Um, this year, I, I'm, I'm hoping to survive the bicycle, and then we'll worry about what we do after this. It's a, it's a lot of work. You say that you, you know, you wish you could be there to hand them out your, yourself. Is part of the reason you can't do that just the current situation with the pandemic and the lack of travel that's going on these days? Uh, part of it, but but you know, that's not the purpose. That's not our purpose. Uh, you know, to go and and and. And, and 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 do that role, um, you know that can be done in Cuba. Um, I, the fly on the wall is is a position that I like to be. I, I mean, I like to sit back and watch it. Uh, some people uh, really insist on 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 being hands on. Uh, when you're in this case, especially when you're sending out uh, three or four hundred bikes, it's not practical to start with, but. If I happen to see one going by and it has one of our uh, sticker on it, uh, then I'll know where it came from. Now, um, as you say, you don't want bicycles coming in from all across the country or beyond because that's just impractical for you to have them shipped into you and then ship them off to Cuba. But again, there is shipping involved when you're shipping the bikes off to Cuba. So if people can't help you with bicycles, uh, can they help you with helping to defray the shipping costs? Is that a possibility? Yeah, we are accepting cash donations uh, for that purpose. Okay, we, uh, I, I, I did have a GoFundMe account a couple of years ago. In fact, I had it for three and a half years. Uh, it was Cuba Can Kids, and uh, unfortunately, U.S. Treasury um, got wind of it and and closed it. So I don't have access to crowdfunding. Uh, if anybody wants to send a contribution, they can send it through to our we- uh, to our not our website, but to our email address by e-transfer, uh, which is cubacanbats at gmail dot com, or they'd have to mail it to me directly. And uh, the best thing is to, if they want to get in touch with me, is to send me an email. Um, and just let me know what they want to do, and we'll we'll work something out. And again, that email address they can send it to is cubacanbats at gmail. Bike. No, sorry, cubacanbikes. Okay, just want to make sure. At, right. Cubacanbikes at gmail dot com. Okay, so that's cubacanbikes at gmail dot com, and you have a website which is cubacanbikes dot ca. Correct. It is. It's a very basic site, but it has some information uh, if you want to go and see it. Bill, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the program with you and continued success with this amazing plan that you have worked out on. Well, thanks, thanks, Peter, and and surprisingly, uh, spread the word, but don't spread it too far. Bill Ryan from Cuba Can Bikes. You can go to my website at thestufffile.com, check out the show number for this program, which is show number 0620, and you'll find links to Bill's website where you can find out how you can help his cause. You're listening to The Stuff File program with me, Peter Anthony Holder. Now, 
boys and girls. It's that moment you've all been waiting for. It's time now for the Idiot of the Day. And now it's time for the strange things adults do. This stuff all presents the Idiot of the Day. Before we start, I have to say that people who post their own transgressions on social media really do make the authorities' job much easier, and by extension, mine. I mean, this is just low-hanging fruit. A 23-year-old man is facing excessive speeding charges for allegedly posting a video of himself speeding down a Labrador road. RCMP said they were notified of the video circulating Snapchat, which showed a driver who was not wearing a seatbelt speeding at around 170 kilometers per hour on June 28th. Police said the video also showed a sleeping passenger in the car. The driver, who identified himself in the video, of course he did, was found and ticketed by police on June 30th. He was fined for excessive speed, not wearing a seatbelt, and using a cell phone while driving, and he had his license suspended. Now, why, oh why, would you post your excessive speeding online for all the world to see, including cops or people who will call the cops? One reason, and one reason only, you're an idiot! Gee, I'm only a kid, but even I know you're an idiot. And that's it for this edition of The Stuff File program number 0620. Hope you enjoyed it. The website is thestufffile.com. And once again, stuff is spelled S-T-U-P-H, where you'll find information and links in all of our guests by going to the weekly Stuff File page. Just look for the corresponding program number. And once again, that's 0620. Email me at peter at thestufffile.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter as P.A. Holder. And don't forget to check us out on Patreon.com where you can become a patron of the program. Hope to see you back here for our next show on the air, online, or as a download. We're coming to you from everywhere, including the podcast station, CyberStationUSA.com, KDXRadio.com, PCJ Radio International and its partner stations, TrueTalkRadio.com, downloaded on Apple or Google Podcasts, streaming on Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio, and over the air on World FM in New Zealand, MediaCore in Singapore, CKUWFM in Winnipeg, and CFMU in Hamilton. That's it. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Stuff File Program with Peter Anthony Holder, a presentation of Flying Fish Communications. We leave you with this deep question to ponder. Who did we compare babies to before Winston Churchill? Thank you.